I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is Paul speaking. Dear brothers and sisters, when I first came to you, I didn't use lofty words and brilliant ideas to tell you God's message, for I decided to concentrate only on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. I didn't use wise and persuasive speeches, but the Holy Spirit was powerful among you. I did this so that you might trust the power of God rather than human wisdom. Yet when I am among mature Christians, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to the world and not the kind that appeals to the rulers of this world who are being brought to nothing. No, the wisdom we speak of is the secret wisdom of God, which was hidden in former times, though he made it for our benefit before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would never have crucified our glorious Lord. This is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But we know these things because God has revealed them to us by his spirit. And his spirit searches out everything and shows us even God's deep secrets. No one can know what anyone else is really thinking except that person alone. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And God has actually given us his spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you this, we do not use words of human wisdom. We speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't Christians can't understand these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them because only those who have the Spirit can understand what the Spirit means. We who have the Spirit understand these things, but others can't understand us at all. How could they? For who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who can give him counsel? But we can understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the spirit you have given us that controls us and makes us right with God. The spirit that speaks to us and tells us we are God's children who will share in his glory in eternity because we do trust the power of God. We understand what the Spirit means because it was given to us by our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever listened to someone's advice and really regretted it afterwards? Well, that was Katie's experience. In 1984, her, uh, husband, her brother-in-law was working on some relay stations around Washington, and he encouraged her to buy some stock in the, one of the companies that was his client's. And so she did so, and her mom did as well. They both bought about 200 shares of this company. And they'd watch kind of over time as the stock would do what stock does and kind of go up and down. But they noticed it'd really just go up to $31 a share, stay there a little bit, then go back down. Then they climb back up and kind of just do that over and over again. And so her, she went and asked her old accounting professor for some advice. You know, well, what should I do with this stock? Or, and he said, well, look, you know, if I ever saw a stock that did that, just kind of went up somewhere and then dropped and did that over and over, 
It's probably never going to get higher than that, so you don't want to go ahead and sell it. So that's what they did. Her and her mom waited till it got about to that $31 a share and then sold all that they had, you know, felt pretty good about it because he still made some money, did well, listened to some advice, ended up not losing out on it. But the bad part was that company was Microsoft. And so as of this morning, you know, it's a little more than $31 a share and they missed out on quite a bit of money if they would have maybe gotten some better advice. But that's the problem with advice, isn't it? Is we, we can be wrong. Whenever you're listening to, to human wisdom or to human ability or what other people think, you can always, not always, but you can often end in trouble. And so the question becomes for us, well, whose wisdom should we rely on? Or where do we go? What should we really be listening to? And so this morning, what we see in this chapter that Linda read for us is a lot of this discussion is centered around man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And man's wisdom, as we'll see, has some limits. And we'll see, so we'll look at that first. We'll see that the limits of man's wisdom. Then we're going to look at the gift of God's wisdom. And then finally, we're going to see how Paul applies that to his, um, to his preaching specifically. But so point number one, if you're taking notes, is that human wisdom is limited by human ability. Human wisdom is limited by human ability. And so we're, we're really going to start kind of in six and see this. And we see that throughout this passage that our wisdom is really limited by a number of things. There's a lot of things that make our wisdom not the greatest. It's holes in our game. And the first thing we see is that our wisdom is actually limited by time. In 6, it says, Yet among the mature, we, you know, we, do not, we do impart wisdom, though it's not the wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Because human wisdom, it's limited by time. Our wisdom passes. It's ethereal. It slowly disappears. And we really, it's limited by time because we don't have time to gain all of the wisdom in the world, even if we wanted to. If you look at the uh, Library of Congress, right, so the Library of Congress has about 25 million books. That's just the physical books. Okay, they got about 170 million other things, sheet music, digital books, plays, all sorts of other stuff. And every day, they actually add almost thousands of books, every single day. In the last nine years alone, they've added nine million books. So that's a lot of books that keep getting added just to that one big library or our national library. You know, I like to think about myself. I'm a pretty prolific reader, right? I think I'm pretty good at reading. I read a lot. So I try and read like 100 books a year, and I feel pretty awesome about doing that. But So let's just say that I double that. Okay, let's just say I cut down on hanging out with my wife as much. We eliminate date night. Okay, I, I, I don't hang out with my kids as much stuff, you know. I quit watching movies and stay up late, wake up early so I can just double that. I'm going to read 200 books a year. Okay, and let's say, you know, I do that in the next 50 years. I, I'm really killing it, and I even remember everything I'm reading. I'm picking out big books. I'm doing good. Okay, 50 years of doing that, I would have only read 10,000 books, which is how many books they're going to add to the Library of Congress this week. So you see, I'm limited. There's only so much time. Even every time you pick up a book and say, I'm going to read this, there's about a million other books that you're not reading that you're missing out on. Our wisdom is so bound by time. We are conflated by the years of our life and how long the hour and our days are. And we don't even have time to learn everything in the world, to read all of those books, even if we wanted to. And even if we could. Even if we could somehow, I could just scan it all into my brain and get it all in a second, and I could actually remember all of it, 
a lot of that would still pass away and fade, wouldn't it? There's so much I'm sure you can even think of if there was something that seemed really vital and really important, maybe significant to your life at one point in time, and now it, it's gone. Nobody even knows about that thing anymore. Right? You talk to your kids or your grandkids and they go, what? what? What are you talking about? Why would you do things that way? That, that knowledge that you worked so hard for that you learned doesn't seem significant anymore. But our wisdom, it also has other limits. It's not just limited by time, but it's limited by our senses. We can only really learn by our sight, by our ears, by what we smell, what we taste, what we can sense physically. We see this in 9 where Paul kind of mentions this, where it's written and he's quoting Isaiah. And he says, what no eye has seen or ear has heard, where the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So the only way we can learn things is through those. But there's some things still that are just out of our reach. Like these people, there's things that their eyes haven't seen, their ears can't hear, their hearts can't even imagine. There's stuff that is still too far away for us. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't learn everything. It doesn't mean we can't learn anything, that we're just dumb. But it does mean there are just things that is impossible for us to understand in our humanness. Right? So we've got two young little boys. There's things that Calvin doesn't understand because he's two. Okay, yesterday, he didn't understand that when I'm telling him, hey, don't do that on your chair because you're going to fall. Well, then he fell and he got stuck in the chair. I was trying to explain to Calvin, see, this is, you know, logically, don't you understand consequences? No, he doesn't get it. He's two. Right? And there's times, too, like this morning, um, or with Grant, who's three months old, when he's waking up early, I'm trying to tell him, no, Grant. <laughs> this is not time for you to be awake. I need to sleep more. I'm tired. The big day tomorrow. You know, Grant, I don't understand. You know, trying to rationalize with him, try to help him see what he's doing is not really that helpful. I need him to sleep longer. That would be really good for us. No, we laugh because that's dumb. He's a three-month-old. He can't, his eyes can't see, his ears can't hear, his mind cannot comprehend what I am trying to say. Well, just like children can't comprehend things that we understand, there are things that we are just like children when it comes to the realm of God that we cannot possibly understand because our human wisdom is limited. It's limited by our ability. It's also limited because we just don't even understand how God's mind works. We barely understand how our own minds work, right? Let alone the minds of other people, let alone the mind of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? Okay, who, who else can know your thoughts? Even if you, you read a biography about somebody, you read 10 about somebody, you can get a good sense of maybe some experiences, maybe some of their things they think, maybe some decisions they made, but you still don't really understand who they are. Still can't really comprehend the way that they think. The only person who can do that is themselves. I'm sure maybe there's some people in your life you wonder, you just think, you know, just for a day, I just want to walk around in your head. How, how do you think stuff? Like, where, what causes you to think this? What causes you to make these things? Why? Because we understand there's only being inside somebody's brain, putting on their shoes, walking around, and that's the only way that you could really fully understand somebody. But we're limited. No one can know a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We literally can't, we cannot comprehend God's thoughts. We can't fully comprehend His ways. We can't even comprehend and understand everything about Him. Why? Because we, we're limited by, again, our own experience. But we're also limited 
and this is a, a big one, we're limited by what we love. Our, our love blinds us. We often write, we, we say love is blind. And you can think of, or maybe you can remember, or maybe you're experiencing it now, you know, where you have somebody who's just fully in love and raptured with somebody, and they're caught up in the passions and the excitement of it. And there's things about maybe this other person they're just ignoring. And, you know, so, and you're trying to tell it, hey, don't you see, like, this is a pretty clear red flag. This is, this is not good. Don't you understand this? And no, they can't see it. Why? Because, well, love is blind. When you're fully enamored, you're passionate, you're, you're in love with not just somebody but something, it blinds your ability to see, to think maybe rationally, to really comprehend everything that's going on. And this isn't just with people, but this is really anything. And so many studies have been done over this over the decades that people are actually willing to totally ignore reality if it goes against what they love or what they already think or are really convinced of. One study, there was a bunch of these that were interesting, but the one that I found the most interesting, they did a study um, on capital punishment, okay? So they got a bunch, big group of people together, and just not even whether capital punishment, good or bad, but just, hey, does it actually deter crime? So they found, you know, split them in the 50-50, got those people, and then they gave them two bogus studies. They just made up some studies with some statistics, one supporting one side, one supporting the other, then gave them to both groups and said, hey, look at these, tell us what you think, evaluate how valid you think these are. And well, what do you think happened? The group that read the paper that agreed with them said, oh, this one's really good. This is clearly great research, really good numbers, really appreciate this. The one that didn't agree with them, you know what they did? They poked lots of holes. Oh, no, this is totally bogus. This is made up. This is bad. And then when they revealed it at the end, they, did people, what, what do you think they did? They just doubled down. Nope, that, that can't be it. Why? Because our, what we think, what we love, it blinds us. And you'd think even there, you know, well, maybe that's just those people or they're just foolish. But this is actually something that happens even the more education you get. Studies have even found that the smarter people got, they actually didn't, they weren't more willing to admit when they were wrong. They would just double down. They were just better at arguing why they were actually right. They could just come up with even more complex reasons. Why? Not because our wisdom's limited by how smart we are, but it's limited by what we love what we care about. This is part of why conspiracies and fake news and things get spread around all the time because what do we do? Well, we see something and think, oh, I like that. I haven't read it. I just like the headline. I agree with that. I want that to be true. Sure, it must be. Why? We're blinded by what we love. Our wisdom's limited by what we love. Here's a more silly example that might help. Now, many of you know I love the Texas Longhorns, unfortunately. Unfortunately for you and also unfortunately for me. So I grew up rooting for them, you know, so I, I love them through thick and thin. And there's been plenty of thin recently. Um, they're my favorite team, right? So I, I really deeply care about them. Now, do you think you're going to be able to convince me that the Oklahoma Sooners are a better football program than the Texas Longhorns? <laughs> or Oklahoma State or Texas A&M? Do you think that's possible? Florida Gators. Florida Gators. Now, yeah, <laughs> Bree would try the Florida Gators, but no. Do you think there's any amount of stats that you could show me? That you could line up championships or Heisman or numbers, you could show me some stuff, put together a presentation and think, you know what, here's why objectively you should not love what you love, you should actually love this team that you hate. No. Why? Because I, I love Texas. Okay? There's nothing you can do that's going to make me not do it. There's nothing you can show me. There's nothing you could convince me. There's no way you could twist my arm. Why? Because love blinds. 
It blinds us. Now, I think it blinds you more than it blinds me, but again, that's the limit of human wisdom. That's how we're limited. Now, the ultimate problem as well, and the problem with our, the limits of our human wisdom is that it makes us incapable of being able to comprehend and experience the things of God. Because of all of these limits, we really we, we need God's help. Again, in 11, for who knows a person's thought except the person, so no one can even comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Later in 14, the natural person, or as Linus translation said, the Christian does, or the non-Christian cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We don't even have the ability to think about God correctly. We don't even have the ability to read the Bible and understand what it says. We don't have the capacity to hear the gospel, think through it, evaluate it, and accept it. Why? Because of all of our limits, and especially, too, because in order to believe it, we have to, at some point, love God. And we love our sin far more than we love Him, don't we? We love our life as it is. And part of this, all of these limits of human wisdom, is why we can't argue people into the kingdom of God. You can't. You can't come up with a good enough presentation. You can't show them a flashy enough video or a good enough sermon or you've got your diagrams worked out on a napkin. You're going to show. You can't do enough things to convince somebody, to get them over the hump, to accept Jesus. Why? Because we just lack the human capacity to even do it. Because our wisdom is limited. And so since human wisdom is obviously a bust, it's got lots of limits, it's got lots of problems, and it gets us in trouble when we rely on it on our own, we need better wisdom, obviously. So how do we get it? Well, we see in point number two is that God's wisdom is a gift gained by grace. God's wisdom is a gift gained by grace. So again, what this, what this means is since we can't comprehend the things of God unless He helps us, we need Him to help us. But it's a good, the good news is He does help us, and it's a gift. 14, again, a natural person cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to Him. We talked about this last week. The gospel is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to the world. So we need supernatural wisdom, but this wisdom is a gift. And this wisdom is something we receive from God in 12. Now, we have received, right? We've been given the gift. It's not something we earned. It's not something we figured out like a Rubik's Cube. It's something that we have been given by God. 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, why? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So again, we have to be given this gift so that we can even understand God, but the good news is this gift is freely given to us. It's not locked behind a paywall. It's not you must be this holy to get this gift. It's not you must do X amount of things. You must be this good. You must follow the law this well. It is freely given to us by God. And again, we, we need this because our, our, list, our wisdom is so limited. We have so many problems. But the good news is God doesn't leave us there. The good news is He comes and He gives this to us. 13, and we impart this wisdom, or we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so part of the gift of God's wisdom is that it continues to come. 
And this gift is even what allows us to learn things about God. What allows us to gain spiritual truths. Spiritual truths like the gospel. Like the fact that Jesus came and he died on the cross for you and for me. To even comprehend that, we have to be given the gift by God. The truth is like we are all sinful creatures. We are all in desperate need of salvation. Not just because of what Adam and Eve did, but because of what we did this morning, what we did today, what we're going to do later after we leave here. Because of all of our sin, we desperately need salvation. Those are things that we cannot gain, we cannot even learn unless, except for as a gift. Now, here's Paul's point in all of this. Paul's point that if even learning about God Okay, if even the ability to read his word, to learn theology, to learn things about him, if that is a gift, what we have to recognize is then our spiritual maturity, whatever it is, how super mature we are, or you know, halfway mature we are, however mature we are, is not a result of how great we are, but that itself is still a gift from God. You... Don't know Jesus like you do because you are so smart and so incredible. You don't know the Bible like you do just because you're so disciplined and you've read it so much. You're not the believer that you are for however long you've been walking with Jesus because of how incredibly gifted and great you are, but because of how awesome God's grace is. That's what he wants the church in Corinth to recognize because a refusal to recognize this actually leads to division and sin. Again, it makes us wonder, what is all this talk about wisdom in the middle of this? Because he just was beating him over the head in chapter 1. He's going to go back to that in chapter 3 and he's going to keep doing it kind of the rest of the book, showing them this horrible church in crisis, all of their issues. He starts here to say, hey, look guys, so many of your problems are because you are so filled with pride. Because you think your own wisdom, your own abilities is so awesome. Because you're so proud of yourselves. You don't realize that your spiritual maturity is only because of God's grace. And if you would recognize that, if you would humble yourself, it could lead to something better. Again, so look back at at verse 6, at the beginning of the section where he says, yet among the mature. So he's starting to, he's addressing their spiritual maturity. And that's really what a lot of this is about, is he's saying, okay, to the, the mature, we, you guys need to understand something. You're, you're really not quite as mature as you think you are. And then in the next verse, or in the next chapter, which we'll touch on this next week, right away he says, brothers, I, you know, brothers and sisters, I wish I could address you, you know, as really spiritual, mature people, um, but you're infants. So he does this whole thing just to set up, really, not just insulting, but confronting their lack. They like to think that they're really mature people. They like to be really proud. I followed Paul since the day he got here. I I really know my scriptures. I really know Jesus. I've got it together. I should be in charge. Paul is saying, no, you guys have forgotten that everything you have is just a gift of grace. And that's what we have to remember. That's what we need to be reminded of, that everything we have, everything we believe about Jesus really is a gift. We didn't get the gospel. We didn't become Christians, right? We're good at the beginning. We think, yes, I'm only a Christian because of the wonderful, undeserved, unmerited favor of God, because of how He saved me. I didn't do anything to earn that. But what we can do is we can then stop that and think, well, everything after that I've earned. 
Okay, all my biblical wisdom, all of my maturity, I've really done that. I've done that myself, so I can be proud, I can feel really great, I can feel awesome. And not just that, I'm, I'm much better than these other bozos who haven't figured it out quite like I have, because I'm so mature. What we have to remember is that everything, including our maturity, all of the wisdom that we get from God is just a gift, and it's given by grace. It's not given because we've earned it, it's not given because we're so awesome, it's given because God is so awesome. A good way to think about it is part of what this means. If we, the natural man can't accept the things of God, if we can't even understand the things of God unless He comes and helps us, then what that means is, you know, this Bible might as well be written in a foreign language. It might as well just be Hebrew. It might as well be Spanish. It's okay. It might as well be written in something in hieroglyphics. Might as well be something that we can't even, you, you look at it and it might as well be upside down or written in pictures and you just can't comprehend anything. That's basically what the Bible is, that's what the gospel is, that's what all of the things of God are, not just to you, but to all of us, unless God helps us, unless God gives us His grace, but that grace is freely given. That's the good news. Now, the hard part for us is some, we forget we get prideful again, don't we? We can start to look at unbelievers, we can start to look to people who aren't as mature as us and start to think, ah, why aren't they as great as I am? Why haven't they learned as much as I have? Well, I don't understand why they don't know that about the Bible. Ha, ah, they don't know, you know, they can't name all the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow, what, what children, I wish, wish they were more mature like me. Realizing, no, everything that we comprehend about God ultimately is just because of His grace. So we need to recognize the gift that we've been given and treat it like a gift. And for unbelievers, if you're listening or if you're here and you don't know Jesus, and so much of this even sounds like hieroglyphics and like a foreign language to you, what you need as well is just receive the gift freely given by Jesus. I would love to talk to you more about that, or any of our elders would as well. Now, point number three, um, or, or what Paul does here, is then really we need to rely on God's wisdom and the gospel. But what do we do about this? We need to rely on God's wisdom and the gospel. So going back to verse, verse 1 and these first five verses, really what we see here in this section is Paul living this out, of Paul saying, okay, if human wisdom is a bust, if human wisdom is limited, if human wisdom has problems, and we need God's wisdom, that's the only way we can gain anything, then that's what we got to rely on. That's what I have to lean on. That's what I have to depend on. I'm not going to depend on my own abilities, on my own self. I'm just going to rely on God. And he spends these verses talking primarily about how he does that, even how he approaches his own preaching. And so he starts off and saying, look, Verse 1, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come to you proclaiming and preaching the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. It says, I didn't come here with a really well-packaged, dynamite, incredible sermon. Lofty speech. He said, you know, this wasn't a really very impressive message that I put together. No one was printing his sermons and scrolls and spreading it around saying, wow, this is just this guy. He's so good at speaking you got to just come hear him talk. It's just, you know, you're not going to get bored. He's going to keep you engaged the whole time. No, because we know from other places in Scripture, Paul really is not the most talented preacher. Really good writer. It definitely helped him write a lot of the Scripture. Okay, his preaching was pretty long, pretty dry, long and dry enough that somebody fell asleep and died while listening to his preaching once. 
Okay? So take that for, for what it is. But what Paul is saying is he recognizes it. And it's not that he said, you know, I don't need to be the greatest speaker in the world. When I came to you, I did not try to blow you away with my impressiveness, with how charismatic, with how awesome I was. All I wanted to do and to, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm not going to rely on my wisdom. I'm not going to rely on my abilities. I'm just going to rely on God's. I'm just going to preach the foolishness of the gospel. And we'll see what God does. And even what Paul is saying here too, he's make, there's, I preach a whole sermon just on these five verses. A lot of what he's saying is great preaching ultimately is not defined by how awesome the preacher or even the sermon is, but it's a, or how good somebody can turn a praise, but it's about does it contain the wisdom of God? Is it centered on the gospel? It is, does it make much of how great the preacher is or does it make much of how great our God is? Now, there are some preachers that are incredible to listen to. Right, there's some that can just like turn a phrase in a way that you remember it years later down the road. Um, there are some who have such a way with words, even listening to them, it feels like you're just listening to poetry or it's just like honey in your ears. Now, one such preacher was uh, George Whitfield. He's a preacher during the Second Great Awakening. He definitely preached with lofty speech. Okay, he also preached the gospel, um, but he was an incredibly charismatic, incredibly talented speaker. He was so, um, so talented that people said, this is very common, they would say that, you know, someone could just break out in tears and repent just hearing the way that George Whitfield would say the word Mesopotamia. Okay? <laughs> just listening to him talk, just his style and his cadence would lead people to repentance because he was that talented. And he was well known, too, for having such a powerful voice because this is way back when they didn't have nice microphones, which help people that don't quite speak as loud like I do or like I don't. Okay, but his powerful voice could reach thousands anyway, outside. Tens of thousands could listen to him talk because he was so gifted. And he was so incredibly gifted, it was just Drew Krause. They just wanted to see, man, well, let's go hear this guy. He must be pretty good. Benjamin Franklin was one of those because he was so curious how he could actually do it. He was like, you know, can you really speak to that many people? So he came and he was ready to calculate the crowd size and, you know, do some math and figure out how powerful his amplification was. And he said, he wrote, you know, well, I was just attending and trying to work that out. And all of a sudden, I was getting wrapped up and the plate came by. And I, I, before I knew it, I'd put all my money in the offering plate. I didn't even know what happened. I don't even really like anything that's being said. Paul is saying, hey, that, that's not me. I, I'm not like George Whitfield. No one's going to do that. No one's going to write about my preaching that way. And he said, I'm not going to rely on that. I'm just going to rely on God's wisdom. And really, that's a bad decision for Corinth. If he went into Corinth, if he was sitting there with church consultants or getting ready to plant a church and he's talking to all the church planner guys and they're doing their strategies and their plans for, okay, how are we going to be missional? How are we going to engage these people? None of them would tell Paul to do this. They would all say, that's the worst idea, Paul. Why? Because the city of Corinth is really well known for their speakers. Okay, they really care about good, they care about lofty speech. They care about lofty teaching. They want to hear good teaching. And if you're good, they're going to listen. They want to hear how well you're turning a phrase and constructing a story that keeps people engaged because they'll go and listen to philosophers argue with each other all day long, not even because they care, but just because it's good and they want to see who wins and how it can be entertained. And Paul says, you know, no, I'm not going to play any of those games. I'm not going to rely on myself at all. I'm not going to rely on human wisdom. I'm not going to rely on my abilities. I'm just going to rely on God's wisdom and His grace and the gospel. 
And Paul is content to not be very amazing. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Again, nobody looking at Paul's preaching would have been impressed. In fact, watching him preach in weakness and in fear and in trembling probably would have made the audience uncomfortable. Okay, we've probably all listened to somebody speak somewhere or seen someone speak who clearly was super nervous, okay, who was deathly afraid, who didn't want to be up there, who their voice is cracking, they're shaking. And, I mean, how do, when I watch that, it makes me uncomfortable, right? It makes all of us feel bad. We just want to give them a hug. We also kind of want it to be over quickly just so we can get through this, okay? We don't really like that. That's what Paul is saying, what it was. His preaching was like that. It was like watching somebody uncomfortable who didn't want to be there that just made everybody scratch their head. It wouldn't make anyone stop and go, wow, that, that person obviously has something that I need to listen to because look how well put together this is. But what Paul did have, he said, you know, I'm just going to rest on Jesus. I was content to be weak. I was content to, in my weakness and my fear and my trembling and my speech not being that awesome. And I was just going to rest in God's power and in His Spirit. Because leaning on the gospel, leaning on God's wisdom is actually what allowed him to preach a powerful sermon. It's actually what allowed the gospel to go forth. Not because Paul was so incredible that people had to come and had to respond and had to run down to the altar and get saved in mass. Not because Paul was so great, but because the gospel is so good. Not because of how great of a speaker he is, but because of how great our God is. Because really, powerful preaching is, is all about the gospel. And two, you know, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He just wanted His preaching to be laser-focused on the gospel, to be laser-focused on Jesus, and that's it. He didn't need a great illustration. He didn't need to end with a wonderful story that left everybody leaving and thinking about and in tears. He didn't want people to walk away and think about how great he was. He just wanted people to walk away having heard about Jesus and having heard about what he did on the cross for them. When you hear Paul preach, I don't know exactly what it sounded like, but I know it had the gospel. I know it was about Jesus. I know it was about the cross. I know that's what it was. And for Paul, he said, that's, that's enough. And remember last week we said, you know, the cross doesn't make sense to the Greeks. The cross is foolishness. We, we talked about how the gospel is just for fools. He knew the, God, the gospel and the cross is not going to be that exciting. It's not going to be attractive. It's probably going to be really offensive. They're not going to like it. They're not going to want to hear it. And so what does Paul do? He doesn't try to pretty up the cross. He doesn't try to put some doilies around it or some flowers. He doesn't try to trim it down, make it smaller. He doesn't try to hide the cross because it's embarrassing. He doesn't try to blow them up with some other stuff and then sneak the cross in at the end before they are ready for it. No, he says, you know what? I'm just going to preach the unadulterated, unedited cross of Jesus. I'm just going to preach the gospel. I'm not going to pretty it up. I'm not even going to be that impressive. I'm just going to tell them about what Jesus did for them. And then we'll see if they respond to that or not. What he did say is, you know, I'm just going to go, I'm going to teach about Jesus. I'm going to teach how he died and shed his blood on the cross for your sins, people in Corinth. I'm going to preach how when you were lost and wrecked and sinning again and again and again, God saw you and he said, you know what, I love that person. I'm going to go die for them 
on their sins and invite them to come be in my family. That's what Paul preached. And why did Paul focus on the gospel? Verse 5, such your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He wanted people to trust in Jesus. Not because the sermon was so good that they couldn't say no, but because the God in the sermon was so good that they had to say yes. He didn't want people to walk away thinking, man, isn't Paul amazing? He wanted them to walk away thinking, wow, isn't the cross incredible? Because the cross is what it's about. It's all about Jesus. You know, I took a lot of of preaching classes in, in college and seminary. And a lot of them were short, like eight, 15-minute sermons, which at the time seemed really annoying, but realized it's actually much harder to only preach for eight minutes than it is to preach for 80 minutes. Um, it's easy to talk a long time. It's hard to actually say something significant. Maybe people remember. Um, but the first preaching class was, was really interesting. It was in a small room, and it was done up to actually even look like a church, which is kind of funny. There was fake stained glass windows, and there was a really big pulpit, and we pump in organ music and stuff. So, you know, then Dr. Paul Fink was a professor, and he taught there for decades. And I remember my very first sermon that I ever gave in class. Um, it, was, it was actually from 1 Corinthians. It was 1 Corinthians 9. And, you know, I got up there and, you know, did my little eight-minute sermon. I was actually pretty proud of it, okay? I walked away feeling like, you know, I think I crushed that. Like, I was confident. It was good. Like, feeling really great. And, you know, connected with the audience. I was getting some head nods, seeing some notes. It looked like they were actually, you know, not totally dozing off. So, it was feeling good. And I remember right after it was over, you know, Dr. Fink started to talk, and it was, you know, we had an earpiece in our ears for whatever reason, so he could just give feedback to us directly without everybody hearing it. So I'm feeling awesome, feeling like I killed it, and he starts talking about it, he's like, well, David, you know, that was good, you know, liked everything you said, stayed on time, you know, it was pretty relevant, seemed good. Um, you know, the problem was, I just, I don't think anything you said actually came from the Bible. Um, you know, it was good, it was okay, like, it wasn't, wasn't not true, but, you know, there just wasn't really anything from the text you said you were preaching. And basically, what he was saying is what, what Paul is saying here. Hey, that was some nice lofty words, and that was some great wisdom, but I didn't hear much about Jesus and him crucified. And what I learned pretty immediately is, hey, you can preach a good sermon. If it's not about Jesus, it's not about the cross, ultimately it's a waste of time. And it's not just true about preaching, but also about us and our lives. We have to be centered, and we have to rely not on ourselves, not on our own ability, but we have to rely on Jesus and the gospel. We have to not be fooled by human wisdom, not even be fooled by preaching that maybe sounds really good but doesn't have much Jesus in it. One pastor discovered, you know, that this is a problem, and preaching specifically, not just for, for young guys trying to learn preaching um, who don't know what they're doing, um, but for church, the church at large in America. And so what he did is he listened to about four sermons from the nine largest white evangelical churches in the United States. Okay, he went and he listened to four of them. So, you know, just listen to one, get a, you know, give them a month, see, see what the preaching is actually like. And what he discovered was that the gospel was absent in almost every single sermon, almost every single one. And this isn't mainline churches. Okay, this isn't churches. These are churches that believe the Bible. These are churches that believe the gospel. You go, you read their doctrinal statements. You, you know, they'll have some baptism videos. They'll talk about the gospel there. They believe the gospel. They're not hiding the gospel. But he said, at best, most of the time, all those sermons just assumed that everybody kind of knew what the gospel was and didn't need to be reminded of it anymore. But most of the time, it was just ignored and passed over. 
we have to work to not be fooled. Not just by, by that kind of preaching, but distracted by lofty words and by human wisdom. Because we like that. If we're honest, we, we all do. Okay, I, I like listening to, you know, I, I can start to go on autopilot if I hear somebody just preaching about the cross and the gospel if I'm not really focused because I think, well, I know that. Why don't you tell me something I don't know? No, Paul tells us we have to rely on the gospel. Paul wanted to be laser-focused in his ministry on the cross of Jesus, on the gospel of Jesus, and nothing else. He didn't want to rely on himself, his own abilities, or anything else. We need to do the same thing. But one of the things I appreciate about this passage that I think comes across here too is that part of what Paul says or encouragement to us is, you know, we really don't have to be that amazing at preaching the gospel. If you read this, this should encourage you to be willing to share the gospel and talk to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your loved ones about Jesus. Because you can do it in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And four, you can do it in speech and message that's not really in many plausible words of wisdom. Well, if it is, it's about Jesus and Him crucified. You don't need the fanciest story. You don't need the greatest explanation ever. What you just need is to just talk about Jesus, what He did on the cross, and what it means. Just like Paul did. Because human ability means absolutely nothing at the foot of the cross. So, I mean, that's how Paul applies it. Specifically, we see how Paul just really relies on God's wisdom and the gospel in his preaching. But if that's true there, and that's true in like the hallmark, the, the front of Paul's ministry and how he spent most of his time and lived most of his life, then that should also be true of us in every single area of our lives. That we don't just rely on ourselves. We don't just rely on how smart we are. We don't just rely on how much we've got everything together, but we need to desperately rely on Jesus. And 16, we need to have the mind of Christ. What does that mean, having the mind of Christ? It's talking about like weird brain transplant surgery. But it means we, we need to be thinking about Jesus and relying on the gospel and relying on his wisdom so much that our minds are just totally saturated with Christ. They are saturated with the cross, that every thought that goes out of them, every thought that comes into them, goes through the lens of the gospel, that we are constantly relying on Him and what He has done. I, I just to use another preaching story, and I'll, I'll end with this. Charles Spurgeon is the prince of preachers, um, well-known, had spoke to millions of people at the biggest church in England um, at his point, kind of at the 19th century. You know how he got saved and heard the gospel? He was saved because he went to church that morning, just kind of stumbled in, found himself, and the preacher actually who was supposed to be there um, didn't show up. He was sick, church was kind of looking around, didn't know what to do, all looking at each other, and elders trying to figure out, uh, you know, somebody's got to preach, got to do something, and you know, just took a vote, pointed at somebody, and said, hey, you, uh, you go preach. And so that guy stood up, nervous, much feel fear and trembling, and preached a pretty horrible sermon. It was actually, you know, not that memorable. Spurgeon later couldn't even tell you, couldn't even remember who that person actually was, but he got saved. Why? Not because that preaching was so good, but because he heard the gospel. 
as he received the gift and it, it opened his mind and he finally just accepted and felt the feet of the cross. Why? Not because that person was so great, but what they did do is they did what Paul did and they just relied on God, just relied on the gospel. Because when we do that, we have no idea what God could do. Not just in sharing the gospel, but in, in every aspect of our lives. So this morning we've looked at, you know, man's wisdom and human wisdom. We've seen that our wisdom really is limited. It's limited in so many ways, limited by all of our human abilities, which most of the time come to nothing. We've seen that God's wisdom, it's a gift. God's wisdom is gained by grace. And what that means for us is that it should lead us to not being prideful, it should lead us to not feeling great about ourselves, and it should lead to what Paul does, to relying on God's wisdom and the gospel, to not relying on our abilities, to not relying on ourselves, not relying on all the things around us, but just to lean and to fall on our face at the feet of the cross. Because when we do that, who knows what God can and who knows what God will continue to do through us and around us. I invite our worship team to come back up as I close this in prayer. Uh, Lord, I thank you just for the, the gift of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your wisdom. Lord, it, it, it blows my mind how gracious and incredibly loving you are to us. Lord, how you give and you've given everything to us. Lord, that you didn't just leave us in our sin, but that you sent your Son to come and to save us. That through him, through his sacrifice on the cross, we could experience new life and salvation, not because we deserve it, not because we are so incredible, but just because it is a gift that you freely give to us if we would just repent of our sins and accept it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize the, the gift that you've given us. Lord, would you help us to rely on the gospel, to rely on your wisdom throughout the rest of our weeks. Lord, would we rely not on ourselves and on our own limits, but would we fall on our faces at the cross every single day and remind ourselves of what you have done for us. We pray this in your holy and your precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue to worship in song. Read you our benediction this month from the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Rely on God's wisdom this week. You're dismissed.